Welcome back to the program. Can you imagine if immediately after 9-11, filmmakers like Scorsese, Spielberg, Coppola, Fincher, and Apatow would enlist in the military to make films about the war on terror, films that would show America at war against its Taliban and Middle East enemies? Well, with the exception of Clint Eastwood, it's pretty hard to imagine. Yet in World War II, that's exactly what happened. Filmmakers John Ford, William Wyler, Frank Capra, John Huston, and George Stevens would in various ways join with the military in the war effort. The work that they did, the impact it had on them personally and on the country, would forever change the workings of Hollywood, the importance of film as entertainment and as an art form, and how Americans viewed war. In that sense, those images from World War II still shape our perception as part of our cultural and political DNA. We're going to talk about that today with my guest, Mark Harris. Mark Harris has worked for years as a writer and editor covering movies, television, and books. He's the author of the brilliant book, Pictures at a Revolution, Five Movies and the Birth of the New Hollywood. And it is my pleasure to welcome Mark Harris to the program to talk about his new work, Five Came Back, a story of Hollywood in the Second World War. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Delight to have you here. How much of the decisions that were made by these directors came out of the fact that during the war, there really wasn't going to be a whole lot going on in Hollywood. They weren't going to be making films any other way other than joining up with the war effort and making these movies that really helped the military. You know, Frank Capra said uh, at one point in his memoirs that that, uh, at the time that Pearl Harbor happened, he was sort of bored with Hollywood and was looking for um, new worlds to conquer. But the truth is that any one of these five men, um, Capra, Ford, George Stevens, John Houston, William Wyler, could very easily have stayed in Hollywood and um, had a flourishing career during World War II because Hollywood kept churning out movies. Um, You know, many of them were about World War II. I mean, it's it's hard to imagine now, uh, you know, you mentioned what, what, might have happened after 9-11. Imagine a world where two to three movies a week came out with some content about the war. That's what happened in Hollywood uh, in the first years after World War II started. Um, so these guys could have stayed, but they they really felt um, the, the call to uh, patriotism. They wanted to serve their country. They also wanted, as George Stevens put it, a, a seat on the 50-yard line of history. They wanted to go where the action was, and they really felt that was the war. And was that pretty much the motivation for all five of them, that they really wanted to be part of, of what was going on, to be where the action was, and that they felt they could really make a contribution? You know, every one of the five had a different motive. Ford was the oldest. He could have served in World War One and didn't, uh, and had always wanted to go to sea, so he actually joined the Navy three months before Pearl Harbor. Um, Houston absolutely wanted uh, a sense of adventure. Um, he, that's what he was most interested in. Um, Capra was uh, a Sicilian immigrant who really wanted to prove that he was an American. Um, Weiler was uh, the only Jewish director of the five I write about. Uh, he had been born in a part of France that had been at various times either free or under German occupation. He had many, many relatives. He was desperate to get out of Europe. And so for him, the war was very personal. Um, and and Stevens, I think, uh, of the five, just absolutely felt that it was the right thing to do, was somewhat frustrated by the kind of work he was doing in Hollywood and, and, and wanted to do something that was 
more serious and had more impact. It's interesting with Weiler, you get the sense that he was the most changed by the experience, that it really had a profound effect on him. Um, you know, I think, I think Weiler and Stevens, probably both, were, were the two most changed. But, but certainly, physically, um, no one suffered as a result of the war more than Weiler did. Um, Weiler was particularly interested in the air war, which was something that was very, very hard to film. Uh, he made a very famous documentary during the war called The Memphis Bell, the story of a flying fortress, which was about a bomber and its 10-man crew. And he made that film by, by getting the proper training and going up with that crew and filming them as they flew missions over occupied France and Germany. Those planes were not pressurized. Uh, they were freezing cold, so you had to wear heavy gloves, which made it hard to operate camera equipment. You had to use an oxygen tank or you'd pass out within minutes, which actually happened to Weiler. And, of course, you were in grave danger. I mean, he, he wasn't flying sort of cosmetic or rear guard missions. You know, his, his plane was shot at. And, in fact, um, one of his two crew members was, uh, uh, one of his two filmmaking crew members was killed in action. Um, so, you know, he, he really, really wanted realism, and that cost him something because while he was in the air over uh, the Italian coast filming for another documentary, he lost his hearing and never regained it. So he came back uh, a disabled veteran who did not know whether he would ever be able to direct another movie. Talk a little bit about Stevens, who really understood or seemed to have a deep handle on the propaganda aspect of this and felt that it was in some way his responsibility, his duty to counter the propaganda films that were coming out of Nazi Germany. I think all of these men were were uh, acutely aware that um, Germany had used propaganda very, very well. Um, Capra certainly was. Um, uh, they were also all aware that they themselves were considered tools of propaganda. You know, they they were often in conflict about whether to. Uh, tell the story the army wanted told, or tell the truth, or to make a great movie. Those sometimes those three things are the same thing, and sometimes they're two different things, and sometimes they're three different things. So you know, Stevens, his journey is really interesting because he he went from um, you know a, a really bad episode earlier in the war where where he was actually faking footage um, at the behest of Frank Capra uh, so that. Um, the Americans could have their own movie about the the victory in North Africa, even though there was no good footage, to, by the end, filming the most searing and dramatic uh, footage that I think any filmmaker captured during the war, which was um, the liberation of Dachau, um, something that just absolutely shattered him and that was a hugely important contribution, uh, among other things, to the Nuremberg trials where it was used, but really changed him deeply. He he had been a great comedy director before the war, and after the war, he said he felt he could never make another comedy. He became a great director of dramas instead. It is interesting to see the way that it not only shaped them, as we were touching on before, but the way it shaped the public's perception of war. I mean, John Huston's work, especially in things like the Battle of Santa Pietro, really shaped the way movies would look at war. Right. Uh, I mean, he invented... It's funny, because the Battle of San Pietro is all staged, but 
Houston did know what combat looked like, and he knew what phony movie combat looked like. So he was staging it with an eye toward creating a kind of new, more realistic visual vocabulary for what war movies looked like. You know, things like a shaky camera, um, things that we now accept as kind of staples of realistic-looking war movies were actually things that started to be invented during World War II. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's hard to look at a movie like San Pietro, which was passed off to the American public as fact and was, in fact, entirely staged. Um, you know, it's, it, it's easy to think, oh, well, Houston was just trying to get away with something. He really wasn't. He, he, he was trying, in the only way he knew how, to to show people what war and combat looked like as he understood it. Talk a little bit about Houston. You, we were talking about Weiler and the, and the injuries that he sustained. Houston came back with maybe what we would consider today a kind of PTSD. Uh, I think that's right. Um, and, and he was very candid about it in his later years. He um, was very, very shaken up by um, what he had seen in Italy, uh, which uh, is where he was stationed for the second of his two documentaries, and also uh, had been terribly frightened um, in the Aleutians, which was uh, the location of his first documentary. Um, You know, the war for these guys, whatever they expected, whatever each of the five expected the war to be, it was something else. And for Houston, uh, who uh, expected the war to be an adventure and sort of great fun, you know, what he found was that it was terrifying, and came back he had nightmares. He had violent impulses that he found really hard to control. He would take his service revolver and walk into Central Park uh, at night, you know, looking, uh, he, as he said, hoping for someone to mug me so I could shoot him. Um, and one of his cameramen, uh, with whom he had worked really closely in the Aleutian Islands, had a complete nervous breakdown and was institutionalized, which is one of the things that led Houston to want to make Let There Be Light, which was his, his great documentary about um, uh, the emotional damage suffered by uh, American soldiers in the war. Talk a little bit about Ford, because his film, which was one of the earliest, The Battle of Midway, is in some ways the most bombastic, the most over-the-top. We look at The Battle of Midway now, and there's no way you can see it and not feel that it's, it's corny. I mean, it, it, Ford had a great fondness for sentimental music like um, uh, Red River Valley. Um, he uses four different narrators in the movie, which is really unusual. He uses two voiceover narrators, but he also uses Jane Darwell and Henry Fonda, who had just uh, played mother and son for him in The Grapes of Wrath one year before Pearl Harbor. And they're sort of their voiceovers are as if they're sitting in the audience saying, hey, look at that, or, oh, gosh, it's so terrible, get get those boys to a hospital. So, you know, you can look at it now and laugh a little bit or, or cringe a little bit, but you have to cast yourself into a world in which there was no Internet, there was no TV, it was the middle of 1942, six months after the war had started, there had not been real news of an American victory in the Pacific until Midway, and now for the first time, people could go to a movie theater and see the Battle of Midway and see 
an American triumph and also see in color, which was even more unusual, what war looked like, what planes against a blue sky looked like, what a bomb looked like when it dropped and burst into this big yellow and orange fireball with black smoke. This was so astonishing to audiences that people reportedly fainted when the movie premiered. And there's a moment in the voiceover when, after several minutes of combat footage, you, you just hear the narrator say, yes, this really happened. Almost as if the narrator had to tell people that they could believe their eyes. This really was what war looked like. And Ford was actually injured in the making of the film. He was. He, he uh, had a couple of other cameramen uh, on the scene with him, and, and the Battle of Midway is really, um, although there are no credits on it, it's really the work of three or four different men, including Ford, uh, as cinematographers. But Ford was filming uh, planes flying overhead on a power station, uh, and uh, he was hit in the arm by shrapnel. And, and you can see in the completed film itself um, the, the impact of the bomb because it, it literally knocks the film loose from its sprockets in the camera. And it was one of Ford's great innovations to keep in the mistake. He wanted people to see what what a falling bomb felt like, and 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 that that shaking um, is visible uh, right in the completed film. Talk a little bit about why we fight and its importance in the whole panoply of of what we've been talking about. Why we fight was a series of seven one-hour films that. Uh, Frank Capra oversaw, and it, it was when Capra was brought to Washington right after Pearl Harbor. That was his original commission. He was he was told that the very outdated lectures and and ancient technical training films that new GIs were being shown, which they hated uh, and laughed at, had to be replaced by something much more galvanizing and exciting about why the war was happening, what was at stake, who the enemy was what their tactics were, uh, what the history of Europe and Japan had been over the previous 10 years. And um, Capra made those movies on almost no money and with almost no time in some incredibly innovative ways. He was one of the first filmmakers ever to use um, animation in a documentary to, to illustrate, for instance, the, the Nazi spread from Germany through Europe. He commissioned some animation from the Disney studios. So he made these movies that, again, now we might look at and say, oh, that's very old-fashioned. But at the time, were films of a kind that had never been seen before by, um, by new recruits. And, and the impact of those movies was huge, although only three of them were actually shown in theaters. They were all shown pretty much to every new American soldier. And uh, after the war was over... William Wyler was asked about Capra's Why We Fight films, and he said that he thought they would outlast in importance any of the work that any of those uh, other filmmakers had done and, and would outlast all of um, Capra's Hollywood work, too. That's how important the Why We Fight films were considered to be. And looking back on them, how important are they and is arguably best years of our lives Wyler's film really the one with the most historical resonance, perhaps? Well, in some ways, it is apples and oranges, because, you know, the Why We Fight films were 
hugely important. You can't underestimate the degree to which um, showing a set of movies to uh, every every new soldier um, shaped the perception of what was at stake for all of the people who were fighting on our side. Um, you know that 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 kind of impact is really profound. Um, but part of what filmmakers did was also to shape uh, the perception of the war on the home front for American audiences. And, and The Best Years of Our Lives, um, the movie that um, Weiler made when he came back, had absolutely a seismic impact when it was released. I mean, it was, by the end of its run, the second or third highest grossing movie in the history of Hollywood. And it, it was really a movie that helped Americans come to terms with what veterans, what their husbands and brothers and sons and fathers had been through in the war and how easy or how difficult their adjustment to um, civilian life was, was going to be. It's also just, I mean, we've talked about a number of movies so far that are, that feel a little bit dated or a little bit hokey. The Best Years of Our Lives is, is not one of them. It is a, a true... American masterpiece, and I, I recently saw it in a, a packed theater of people who were absolutely, you know, 68 years later, as, as moved by it as as you could possibly imagine. It's it's a great, great film. One of the other things that's so interesting about the dealings that these guys had, and Capra in Washington in particular, but really all of them as you talk about it, some of their dealings in Washington and with the War Department were even more difficult than what it was like working in Hollywood under the studio system. That's right, and and Capra actually said that um, he felt that constantly fighting studio heads to get what he wanted in the 1930s was great training for uh, dealing with um, the the War Department and and the higher ups in in the military bureaucracy. Uh, he wrote a letter home to his wife saying, you know, I know what these guys are like from having worked at studios. You can't give them an inch. Um, and it's sort of funny. I mean, as much as they all really wanted to serve, people like Capra were also, you know, very important in their own right and, and used to having their own way. Capra had been on the cover of Time magazine long before he... Uh, signed up for the war effort and, and didn't particularly like being bossed around um, or, or thwarted. I mean, he was absolutely willing to take orders uh, when the orders were in the service of uh, patriotism and, and gave a great deal of himself to the war effort. But, but when someone tried to mess with one of his movies, um, he really got angry and competitive and protective. So that side of these directors... Uh, the competitive side, including with each other, um, that never went away. You know, even during the war, the Academy Awards went on as usual, and um, you know they would they would submit the short films they they made in in the you know and the rivalry that that they once had for best picture or best director migrated over for a few years to best documentary short, yeah. where a lot of them competed. Talk a little bit about how Hollywood changed. As a result of all this, directors became more important. Movies got darker. There really were a lot of changes that took place after the war as a result of all of this. Yeah, it's it's funny to think of, uh, you know, 
nobody would have used the word the indie movement back in the 1940s or 1950s. That seems to us more like uh, an 80s or 90s story with things like the Sundance Film Festival. But but the end of World War II was really not the end of the studio system, but the beginning of the end of the studio system. It was the first moment when directors and actors started to assert uh, that they wanted to be independent from the servitude of studio contracts. And in fact, um, three of the five directors I write about, Capra, Weiler, and Stevens, banded together right after the war to form what, if it had succeeded, would have been the first really independent director-driven production company in Hollywood. They, they created a company at Capra's behest called Liberty Pictures. And um, their idea was that each of them would direct three movies uh, and, and, you know, kind of run their own show. That, unfortunately, only lasted one film because um, the first movie uh, made under that company, It's a Wonderful Life, even though we now consider it a classic, was a failure and did the company in after, um, after just one movie. Talk a little bit about George Stevens, who we've kind of left out of this conversation a little bit, who was the most arguably enigmatic of these guys. Stevens was a hard guy to get to know, according to even the people who knew him. He um, he had a very, very kind of stone-faced expression. When he was trying to work something out on a movie, um, he, he wouldn't talk. He would just pace up and down endlessly, silently. Um, he was very warm with his family and with his son, but colleagues often found him kind of taciturn and difficult to read, and he didn't have the easiest time talking to people he didn't know. Um, his his experience in the war was, was really, really profound and, and, and also varied. I mean, it, it started in North Africa. It um, moved on to uh, D-Day and uh, the march through France to the liberation of Paris. He was uh, in the Battle of the Bulge and then was one of the first uh, filmmakers into Germany and, you know, filmed the, the, the camps, uh, uh, filmed, filmed at Dachau, uh, and, and stayed, uh, stayed on in Germany after the war was over to prepare the Dachau footage for the Nuremberg trials. So, you know, his, his, his work in the war was really tremendous. The greater context for all of this that's important to remember today is that they were there was no television footage, there were no uh, film crews and, and news crews there, that this was really how the, the country and the world learned about what was going on. Yes, that's exactly right. We, we think of uh, people going to the movies during World War II uh, as a kind of means of escape, you know, the, with with so much at stake and, and America under such siege, uh, the movies were a place to go to forget your troubles. And in some ways, that is true, but the movie theater was also the place to go to confront reality. It was the only place you could actually see the war, see the world, see what news looked like. And, you know, those newsreels and nonfiction shorts and documentary shorts changed every week, just like the features did. And, you know, for instance, when the Battle of Midway opened, or when the first footage of D-Day was released, that was advertised as, you know, coming soon, three days till first D-Day footage, 
as heavily as any um, Hollywood feature was advertised. I mean, and and people went to theaters absolutely to see that footage. Mark Harris, the book is Five Came Back, a story of Hollywood in the Second World War. It's just out in paperback from Penguin. Mark, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.